Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is not Caleb Mason. It is actually Todd Hicksonball. And we have a great episode for you today. Today, we are talking with Bradley Stats. And Bradley is a professor at the University of North Carolina. Um, Kenna, Kenna Flagger. Flagler. Don't make fun of me. Business school. And he also authored the book, Never Stop Learning. Stay relevant, reinvent yourself, and thrive. He also works with companies around the world to develop their learning and analytic strategies. He advises individuals and organizations on how to learn and improve in order to stay relevant, innovate, and succeed on an ongoing basis. And we really just had a fascinating conversation. One of the reasons why I really enjoyed this book and I enjoyed our conversation with him is really we we kind of break down um, learning and how you can learn the best that you can. Yep. Yeah, this was this was a really fun um, thing to be able to do. Uh, Caleb and I we obsess over over learning, and, and for us, it's reading, it's listening to podcasts, it's watching yeah. things. It's, we we obsessed over it enough to start a podcast about right. learning. Right. Well, he really gets into science stuff. I mean, this yes. is this is this is learning, but this is from a scientific perspective. This is yep. This is mu- in research. This all that is good much stuff. deeper than I think what what you and I. I mean, what we do on our own, yeah. And, and so it was a great time to be able to to dig in with him and and be able to pick his brain on things, and just learn. Definitely. And speaking of learning, oh, we have our learners corner recommended resource of the week. This is a book. I have it this week. It's a book. It's about eight years old. It's called Switch, and it's the first book I ever read by Chip and Dan Heath. Whoa. Yeah. And I am rereading it right now. And it's one of my favorite books because, well, let me read you the subtitle. So it's called Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard. Chip and Dan Heath. Now, we just recently went and were able to see, was it Dan or Chip that was at Catalyst? I forget. Which one was at Catalyst when we just went? I think it was Chip. I think it was Chip. I thought it was Chip, too. Well, anyways, we just recently saw um, one of the brothers and, and great talk. But this book was is pretty foundational for, for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, the number one thing in most organizations that's the, or or on teams or whatever to, to deal with is change, and and they do a great job of, of laying out. I mean, that's what the book is about. They, they do a great job of laying out how to do that effectively. Two. I love their writing style. I love the way that they do their books. They mix stories in with just raw data and facts, and it, and it makes for just a brilliantly done, well, well-written book. Love it. Agree. We love it. We love it enough. That is a Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-ba! Also, I just want to point out, you missed the song at the front end. I don't care. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> oh, but anyway, we have a great episode with you and a great conversation with Brad Stats, which we're going to go into right now. Well, Brad, we are so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Um, great, guys. I'm happy to be here as well. You know, we're really excited to talk with you. Um, you recently wrote a book called Never Stop Learning. And so just as we get started, kind of the first question we have is, what is the first step to becoming a more dynamic learner? 
It's a great question. So this is a question that this bugged me for uh, for quite some time. I spent some time in industry. I frankly came back to academia uh, to try to make sense of learning. Why why is it uh, sometimes we don't learn? Uh, and I came at it at first from an operations perspective, uh, trying to understand the processes. Uh, and uh, over time, uh, quickly realized that uh, you know behavioral science played a big role. That it was it was processes and people. And I think that kind of the first step. Um, that I would highlight is, is a common one, which is an awareness of the problem. Um, that uh, when it comes to learning, it turns out you know we're often bad at it. Um, that we're often our own worst enemy, and that instead of doing the things that'll help us learn, um, we often do just the opposite. And so, if we want to learn effectively, we really need to understand some of that behavioral science. Why you know we work against ourselves, so we can then you know not only be aware but start to design better processes to, to overcome those challenges. So what might be a couple of things that people can do to better understand the problem that they're experiencing? Are there any key um, questions or steps that you normally take in discovering um, what the problem might be? Yeah, I mean, so for me, it's been kind of a matter of, of looking at, you know, where, where do I consistently run into trouble? Uh, and then uh, kind of much of my research is, frankly, me-search, uh, kind of those, those sorts of things that, uh, that I've always wondered about. Uh, and so let, let's take one, you know, a common topic in learning, um, that of failure. Uh, that, uh, you know, there's no shortage of advice of, hey, you need to fail fast, you need to be willing to try new things, not have them work, and move on. Um, and yet, while kind of almost every organization I've been around talks about it, um, kind of then, you know, if you get somebody to the side, and at least if I look at my own self as well, um, I think most of us don't feel like we necessarily do it very well, um, but it's really hard, it's really awkward, and so... It's a good example of, hey, we talk about this thing we should do, but if you look at our lives, we, we don't actually do it. Um, and so then we can kind of ask, well, well, why not then? Um, and so failure is an example. I mean, there are a couple of elements. Um, one is you just have a fear of it, that you know, failure can be embarrassing, it can be shameful. Uh, and so, you know, we actually just don't take the risk in the first place. Um, and so we've got to come up with ways to, to encourage us to do that. The second piece we don't uh, learn from failure sometimes because we just don't see it, that when things go wrong, instead of, you know, recognizing, hey, you know, I fell short of my gap, my, you know, goal, um, I have a gap, I need to, you know, work hard to fill it, you know, maybe we tell ourselves, well, that's what I wanted all along, or, you know what, I, I would have done even worse, uh, and so it turns out this was actually good performance, uh, and so we kind of lie to ourselves, frankly, uh, and so we have to, you know, come up with approaches to address both of those elements. How do we deal with the fear? Um, how do we, uh, you know, see more honestly what's going on instead of seeing what we want to believe? What role does feedback play in this process? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, and it, it plays a critical one. Um, the challenge, of course, is how we internalize it. So, you know, I think at a high level, other people sharing with us what's going on is great, and you, know, you want to avoid that problem of the emperor has no clothes, right? That we're doing things, they're going, you know, frankly, horribly awry, say, as a leader, um, and everybody's afraid to tell us. They all pretend, you know, like it's going well, and then eventually, you know, things get so bad that, that it comes out. So, you know, good 
good feedback um, has a chance to kind of shock us uh, and uh, move us in the right direction. Um, unfortunately, all too often, you know, we, we get some of that feedback from people and we put blinders on. Um, we you know, kind of pretend like uh, it's, uh, you know, it's not really there. And so, you know, effective learners surround themselves with, with first people that, you know, are going to be honest with them, that care enough about them to be honest. Um, and that second, they actually listen to the feedback that comes. Um, they don't, uh, you know, kind of you know, willfully ignore it. Is there a, a, a way that you found or that you've seen where there was an effective, a really effective way of kind of putting, building a system around feedback whenever it comes to learning? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I, I think there are a few things that, that really matter. Um, I mean, one is recognizing um, kind of the – even when we, we care about it and as somebody who teaches about it, I ask for feedback, it's still kind of – you know, it's still a little bit jarring to my system um, when it's when it's negative. And so there's an element of making sure that we've created a safe environment for, for feedback, uh, that we as, uh, as a leader, we as the team, you know, make it okay to speak honestly, um, that when somebody shares, you know, we see that they're doing it kind of with our best intentions. Uh, kind of Amy Edmondson at Harvard calls this idea psychological safety, that it's, it's safe to take risks within teams. Um, and she finds that others who built on work find you know, that team performance is fundamentally predicated on you know, being in a psychologically safe environment. Um, and it does a bunch of things, but one of the key elements um, is that feedback piece, uh, that uh, then when it comes, um, we're more likely to, to hear it in the first place and internalize it. Um, I think another piece uh, is around you know, the, the frequency with which we get it, that in, in too many organizations, feedback, um, it, you know, it, it really is an annual activity um, that, um, you know, you've got your kind of end of year piece and, and that's when you get it. And so, you know, we've been doing work with, with folks like Deloitte um, looking at how can we shorten those feedback cycles? How can we try to get, you know, uh, they put in, you know, practices every week or two, you know, getting kind of little, um, you know, nudges from, um, from folks and then, um, also importantly, having somebody to help you make sense of that feedback, uh, that it's not necessarily your team leader, uh, that, uh, you know, sometimes it's that person, but, but often it might need to be a coach uh, who really is your advocate, right, who you've separated out that kind of learning goal from the evaluation piece. Um, and so that makes it okay for you to talk about. So I think, you know, kind of that safety element, the frequency, and then someone to help you interpret it are all critical components to a well-functioning feedback system. How do we fight against the fundamental attribution error? That's something that you talk about um, yep. in your book. And, and sure. can you also define yeah. what? The, and can you also define what that is for the listeners as well? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, no. So um, it really it gets around this challenge of failure. So, so what the fundamental attribution error uh, is, it's, it's you know, kind of a result from psychology that we've had for decades that tells us, you know, when we take an action, when we do something, um, and we eventually get an outcome, um, that, you know, that outcome is a result of some things that we did, our hard work, our skill, our preparation, but also some of the situation, right? Sometimes we just get unlucky that, you know, we we're trying to sell a product and, you know, the customer was not going to buy from us no matter what we did. They, you know, it was their nephew that was selling on the other company. 
What's interesting about the fundamental attribution error um, is it tells us when things go wrong that we evaluate ourselves different from other people. So when I have a failure, I have to decide, hey, was it me or was it the environment? Was I unlucky? Well, I know how talented I am, how hard I work. Of course it was the environment. It had to be kind of an outside force. When somebody else fails, though, we have that same evaluation. Was it them? Was it the outside? Oh, it was definitely them, right? So we evaluate others differently than we do ourselves. So we did some research looking at uh, looking at heart doctors and trying to understand in uh, cardiac surgery, um, you know, how did people learn from themselves and their own failures or from others? And so in that context, failures, unfortunately, patient mortality, losing a patient. And there can be times where, you know, a doctor does everything right and, and the patient just doesn't make it. Um, but what the fundamental attribution error would tell us is that we're going to evaluate that kind of differently, right? And that we may actually then lose that opportunity for learning uh, as, uh, as we go along. And that's what we see in the data, uh, that the doctors do not learn from their own failures when things go wrong. Uh, but interestingly, they actually do learn from others. Um, so they can look at that and they can see that somebody else made the mistake and then try to pick up lessons from that. And so when we think about the fundamental attribution error, I think this gets to kind of this broader discussion of, of how do we deal well with failure. Um, you know, part of it is, you know, trying to reduce distractions. Um, that, you know, can we link, you know, the actions we took um, to what actually occurred? Um, and we can talk later about kind of processes and outcomes and, and how that all goes. But, you know, we did some experiments where, you know, as there was less ambiguity, um, People had fewer excuses, and then they were willing to internalize their actions and admit what was going on. Um, I think there's another element that you know, we have to really try to destigmatize failure, that especially if we're a leader in a group, um, we have to help people see that you, know, you had an idea, it was a good one, it didn't work out, though. Um, is different, that that's okay, that that's a normal part of the innovation process. And so, you know, across a number of organizations, you know, really talented leaders are willing to be open, are willing to be somewhat vulnerable um, as they share their own stories. And so, you know, if we think about the fundamental attribution error, in many ways it's a defense mechanism, that it's sort of the little kid breaking the base and it wasn't me. Um, and, you know, instead, you know, that when something goes wrong, you know, the first question is, well, well might, why might I have been responsible? What could I have done differently? How do I think about this differently? What did I learn rather than, okay, I need to make an excuse to kind of cover this up and sweep it away? Bradley, I, I think that for many of, of the people listening, they're, they're part of organizations or they're part of nonprofits or whatever whatever it is their, their job is. And they're going, Brad, I don't have margin to, to fail Yep. How, do, how do we get to a spot where um, even though failure is a negative and it's not necessarily the outcome that we want, how can we begin to value you? How can we begin to value it? And how can we value it in a way that maybe we have to even lead up um, in our organizations to show um, the value of failure? No, it's a great question, um, and it, it's one I get a lot because I think failure is one of those topics that that we're frankly still still trying to make sense of. I mean, I, I love Ed Catmull, um, who's the head of Pixar uh, and Disney's Animation Studios, kind of talks about this um, and and makes the point of we have to kind of change our mindset about failure or mistakes. 
um, and recognize that when we're trying to do new things, um, that you know, failure is just uh, a part of that process. Um, that it's not you know unusual, it's not unexpected. That you know fundamentally, if we don't fail, it means we're not trying enough new things. Um, and so, how how do we kind of shift that? Well, again, some of it, if if, if we're managing down, um, I love uh, the story of uh, there's a CEO named Tom Crossy um, at a small quick service uh, you know restaurant chain um, who uh, likes to say, look, if it's not illegal, immoral, or unethical, you're allowed to make any mistake once. <laughs> Just make sure your make sure your next mistake is a new one, um, and I think that kind of gets to the to the point here. Um, and so that's great when you're the CEO passing that down. Um, you know, harder to no look, boss. I'm allowed to make this. No, you're not. Um, it was a little bit of a different story. Uh, I think as we manage up, part of it is having a discussion uh, around it, being open to it, because I think when we really you know talk it through, we realize, hey, look, you know, if we are trying something new, and we are only going to try things that are going to work at 99.9999% then how different is it ever going to be are we really being innovative enough now I'd argue almost for sure the answer is no and so how do we shift that well we start to think about things like failure rate um, that are we measuring you know our failures in the organization and that I think really thoughtful organizations appreciate you know our failure rate you know, in a creative process, right? Not in running the nuclear reactor or a high right. environment. Right. In that creative process, our failure rate, you know, it has to be non-zero. And that our problem might be that it's too low and that we actually have to encourage it up, right? And so then we, you know, when things go wrong, we celebrate it. Um, not inherently because it went wrong. We celebrated because it was a good idea that was tried um, and people went after it. Uh, but that's definitely kind of a mind shift that, uh, that's tough to do. How do we do failure? You mentioned something that, that sparked a thought. How do we do failure yep. and learn in situations like you, you mentioned the nuclear reactor thing? How do we yep. learn in situations where failure truthfully isn't an option? Like there will be very yeah. catastrophic issues if there's any type of failure. Yeah, I mean, I think what you see in high assurance organizations like that, that they value practice in a way that, frankly, most organizations could pick some lessons up from. Um, but if you think about, um, you know, a nuclear reactor or flying an airplane, they spend a lot of time in simulated environments uh, because they know they can't do, you know, we can't go and let's just try something new today. Um, instead, they try to get kind of a, you know, high fidelity simulation. Think about a, you know, a flight simulator, and they put the pilot in the seat, and suddenly the left engine goes out. And then, you know, she has a chance to try to respond to that. Um, and I think what's so interesting about that is they're recognizing you have to take learning offline, um, but they're recognizing that value of practice. And I think in too many settings, you know, we view practice as, oh, that's something I did when I was a kid and I played sports, um, forgetting that, you know what, we actually, for a lot of the stuff we do, um, we could bring practice into our regular job. You know, if we're in sales, how could we regularly practice trying to sell, um, creating difficult scenarios that, you know, are going to get us ready for then the real thing? You mentioned um, that other organizations that maybe aren't in that same context could take lessons. What are some lessons that they could take from that, and how could they begin to implement that, maybe into training or maybe into regular review times? Sure. I mean, I think part of it is trying to figure out, 
you know, can you capture some amount of what's going on uh, of the process with data, right? So I spend time around call centers, and so one of the advantages they have uh, is managers can listen directly into calls that now with um, the benefit of technology and the fact that those calls are recorded, um, they can you know, flag a call that a customer was unhappy with and then go back to the data later and listen to it with an agent and work through with them um, and potentially share that with others. And so in the same way, thinking about, you know, what kind of data might we have in our own environments um, to, uh, to take advantage of. Now, in many of kind of the professional environments folks are probably working in who are listening, you know, say, well, I don't have cameras or audio and that's, that's probably a good thing. But, um, you yeah, that's fine. I, th- I think it gets to your point of, you know, how do we capture some of these scenarios that we're doing repeatedly, whether it's the selling process uh, and, you know, having having it break down. I think more and more organizations, you know, we're taking advantage of kind of gamification ideas um, where we look at things we do, we create some little games around them, and then we incorporate that in some of our training. You know, in a retail context, a company I work with, we, we have a kind of retail store simulation um, where they come in and they run the store. And you can have some things go wrong and they have to then respond, and then you can talk about it, but it makes it much more salient as they're in some ways practicing the very role that they're going to go out and do. One of the, when you're as you're saying that one of the examples that popped into my mind was uh, the company Chick Fil A. They've yep. actually built on their 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 facilities. Their R and D facility is actually a Chick Fil A housed inside, like a building housed with inside of a warehouse, and they actually run that store like a Chick Fil A, like just like they would any other store. And and they test out all their new things, and they actually do things where employees can go can come of the company can come down and get you know lunch or whatever there, and that's how they test new products and new ideas out. So that, I that's definitely I'm um, hearing what you're saying. That's, that's a great way to do it. Yeah, I wanted to shift gears um, just a little bit. You mentioned in the book a study that that found that seventy to eighty percent of kids' dialogue consists of questions. But that the same study shows the range the range for adults was only about fifteen to twenty five percent. So the question I have is what's what's led to this down this decrease in in question asking, and yep. and what can we do to help foster an attitude both in our organizations at work as as well as in our personal lives? How can we foster an environment that encourages question asking? No, it's, it's, uh, that one really struck me when I first ran into it because I think you know anyone who's been around uh, a young child, either their own or a neighbor, um, you know niece, nephew, um, kind of has experienced that. You know why, 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 why um, until you know, you're you're completely out and have nothing more. Um, and yet it kind of it decreases with time. And then what's going on there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's probably some bigger societal impacts of, you know, we're trained to, to hold some of our questions in. Um, if I look at all the organizations um, and kind of why, you know, do we see people kind of rushing to answers instead of taking the time to step back and think? I think there are a couple of drivers. I mean, one is just that too many of us are simply too busy. We have too much to do. Yeah. Um, that you know we're rushing from one thing to the next. You know we've got that little nagging kind of feeling maybe in the back of our mind of you know, perhaps something doesn't feel right here. But you know what? I've got to move to the next item on my to do list. I just don't have any more time. You know, meeting pops up. 
time to get out the door, okay, fire off the email. Um, and so that kind of underlying busyness, you know, creates um, a real challenge that, that makes, us, makes us kind of go. Um, I think the other piece um, is that often we end up self-censoring, that we have that question, we want to ask the question um, some of the time, um, and we don't do it, um, that we think other people are going to judge us, um, that we worry about, you know, I'm going to look foolish when I ask the question. When you're a four-year-old, you know, varies by kid, obviously, you don't worry about looking foolish, you're just doing. Um, and I think, you know, there's kind of that element that as a learner, um, we have to be willing to put ourselves out there, but again, that, that takes some, some risk. Um, you, know, you, you asked about you know, how, do we, how do we overcome that, um, which I think is, is, a great, uh, is a great question. I mean, part of it is recognizing that it turns out, if you look at the research, um, people value others asking questions, um, and they value it for a couple of reasons. Um, one is when I ask you a question, um, you know, I am turning to an expert that you know is well qualified, which is you, right? We, we find it smattering when somebody asks us a question. It's kind of a way to engage us. Um, there's some cool research looking at speed dating, um, and it showed that, you know, people who asked questions were far more likely to get subsequent dates. Uh, so it's just a, it's a good strategy in all facets of life. Uh, um, <laughs> you know, in, uh, in addition um, to kind of being, being aware of that element, um, you know, I, I think that um, you know, part of it is um, appreciating that you know, when, when we get more knowledge, it doesn't mean that we have to have all of the answers. That um, Bob Sutton, uh, kind of author and, and professor, talks about you know, it's important that we have you know, strong opinions weekly held. And I think that weekly held component is one that we can all benefit from thinking about. And what he's saying is, hey, look, we shouldn't be afraid to have an answer. You know, this, this willingness to admit we might be wrong it can't be paralyzing, um, but at the same time, so we have a strong opinion, um, but new information will present itself, and kind of we may have some different ideas, and when that happens, um, then here's a chance to consider what's going on um, and adjust. That's not flip-flopping. That's actually learning and giving ourselves a better chance of success, um, and so I think kind of that component um, is really important of sort of giving ourselves permission um, to ask ask questions and not feeling the pressure that we have to always know the answer. How do you improve as a question asker? I think a lot of people, you know, the, the old saying, you know, there are no dumb questions, but shouldn't we at some point be um, getting better at our question asking? I think we should. And that's a, it's a, that one that, that, um, that I spent a lot of time looking at and, and still feel like I've only scratched the surface. That uh, there's uh, it's interesting, to me at least, there aren't many models out there of how to ask really good questions. Um, and so that's something that I, I have some thoughts on, but, but I want to continue to unpack. I mean, I, I think one of the elements of asking good questions is making sure we're really listening. Um, that are we giving our full attention to the topic, um, to the speaker? Um, you know, as we listen, are we, are we talking and playing back to them what they're saying? Not, not agreeing, uh, but just making sure we really understand where they are coming from. Um, and, you know, that kind of, you know, back and forth, um, 
kind of just adding knowledge that can be really important um, for asking asking questions. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the tools that uh, that I've seen that I like for improving question asking um, is what they call it Toyota, um, the five and why exercise. And it's basically playing that role of, of a toddler um, that uh, every time you know we look at something, we ask why. And for each answer that comes back, we ask why again. Um, and we keep doing that over and over again with the idea being, you know, eventually we're going to get from the symptoms that we start at down to the root cause. Um, I think that... You know, the, the other element of how do we ask good questions kind of ties back to where we started, um, that, you know, the reason that there are no dumb questions is not that the individual question I ask might end up in hindsight being dumb, because um, it may, frankly, that, you know, once we've asked it, we realize, oh, okay, that, that really is absurd. Uh, but it's the, the process is not dumb, and that I can't know until we interact for sure, is this a good question? Um, is it a dumb question? May it spark something else in you? And so, so kind of creating that freedom, um, you know, for um, each of us um, to uh, to ask, you know, what's on our mind as we're exploring it. So um, the next thing I wanted to, to talk about is this this idea that you talk about in your book, um, process learning and outcome learning. Can you talk mm -hmm. to us about what those are, and then what's the, what's the difference between the two? Sure. So, uh, you know, I think if, if any listeners are fans of the NBA, uh, then you can't help uh, seeing uh, with basketball recently the Philadelphia 76ers and their whole story of trust right. the process um, over and over again, right? So, that's out and, you know, got to trust the process. Um, and they're actually getting at a real fundamental point um, around learning with that, um, that uh, it turns out that, you know, we know that learning requires evaluating the process that helped us get to an outcome. Um, all too often, we focus on, on just the outcome instead. And we basically make this assumption of, hey, if things ended well, then I must have done it right. And if things ended poorly, I must have done it wrong. Um, and that's understandable um, that we would want to think that way, but it's unfortunately entirely too simplistic. Um, that you know we have to start by by looking at the outcome, and, and so that's a reasonable place when we don't have enough information. But as we learn, we have to dig deeper and really get into the process that took us from A to B. And this is a recognition. You know, again, kind of use the sales example. There can be times that we did everything right and just didn't secure the business. Um, and if we then take, well, any sort of, you know, kind of bad outcome means I have to completely revamp things, or any sort of good outcome means I do it the same way again, you know, we're going to miss the underlying story. There's been a bunch of kind of different research studies to try to capture this. Um, one of my favorite ones is back to the NBA, looking at coaches' decisions after very close losses compared to very close wins. And so you can imagine that, you know, depending on how much you win or lose a game by, it gives you some indication as a coach of your strategy um, and, you know, how you might change things, say your starting lineup the next game. Um, and so if you lose by a lot, you're quite likely to change your starting lineup. If you win by a lot, you're much less likely to do so, and that all makes sense. But as you get right around kind of zero, right around the win by one, lose by one, we see a dramatic shift in the data. Coaches that lose by one point are dramatically more likely to change their lineup than those that win by one point. 
even though it's the same basic story there, right? It was a very close game that didn't go your way. They can control for lots of things and show this happens again and again. And so it gets to this a problem of we so want the outcome to have the most meaning that we miss the underlying lessons of what's really going on. Uh, I think if, if we're going to learn successfully from, from the process, we have to start by focusing on it, um, by recognizing that when we make decisions, we, we, um, we always have a model for that decision, assuming we gave it a little bit of thought. Sometimes it's a mathematical model, right, analytics, and we you know, could actually write a formula. Far more often it's a middle model. In our mind, we have some idea of what works. And so we need to identify those models. We need to, you know, maybe go so far as to try to, you know, write out a little bit why do we think these things are connected to one another so that then, you know, once we take that next action, um, we can look back and see what happened, why did it happen. Um, we have to create measures. Um, sports is a good example here, but why kind of has analytic overtaken the sports world? Well, um, it started by, hey, we can build models to try to connect what, what you know, did happen to what you know, should have happened, what could have happened, um, but also you know, big investments in technology. In baseball, um, there's a system called the StatCast technology. They have cameras and sensors throughout Major League Baseball parks, and so they can tell you where players are at at a moment in time, how hard, uh, what was the velocity of a ball off a bat. Um, and use that to really get a much better feel for what was going on, because sometimes you could hit a ball incredibly hard, which is exactly what you want, but you still make it out. You don't want to take the wrong lesson from that as you look at the bigger picture. In our organization, same thing. How do we kind of identify those measures that are about the process, knowing that, hey, we took a good bet here, and it didn't work out, so I should reward this team, versus, you know what, they didn't care, they didn't try, um, and consequences is absolutely, you know, in order. We can't just look at the end state um, as we do that. So I wanted to dig in on that just a little bit. Um, yep. What what role does evaluation play in this? And the reason I ask that is because you could have a team, and you mentioned earlier that loses by a point, and it's it, it's huge as to how many of them will will change their lineup. How do how do we know? how to evaluate our results correctly so that we can learn from it. Because, you know, like you're saying, we can overcorrect and actually do more damage in, in a lot of cases. So, so where's that line and how do, we, how do we know how to test that? Is it a trial and error thing? Or is it simply we have to have as much information as possible? No, it's a, it's a great question. And, and, and of course, you know, it, it's as much as we'd like it to be a, a yes-no kind of, you know, throw us clearly in one side versus the other, um, it never ends up being that easy. That, you know, we are talking about things that are inherently difficult to evaluate. Um, you know, one of the strategies that uh, uh, Tim Hinkie, the former general manager of the 76ers that really started the trust the process idea that he calls out is this idea of, you know, when we are, before, before we get the outcome, we should take the time to write out what we expect to have happen um, and why we expect that to happen. Uh, and then after it occurs, we go back to that. And often we go back to it with, instead of just me, we go back to it with a group. We have kind of this idea of an after-action review. Um, 
you know, originally coming out of the military, but now we see a lot of different organizations um, using this approach of, hey, once something occurred, let's not evaluate it for do you get a bonus or not. Let's evaluate it for learning. Let's try to understand, you know, kind of, you know, what was good, what was bad, what do we take away, how do we change, uh, and that group interaction, sometimes we need somebody to facilitate it for us um, from the outside because it may be a little bit too close, and so that person can help, you know, avoid the blame game and avoid some of that evaluation component, um, but really pouring through it together um, helps us tease apart, right? Because we can come up with simple examples where, you know, that was brilliant and we shouldn't have changed it, uh, even though it didn't work, that was a disaster, but instead most of what we do is going to be a mix. Uh, and so, you know, this is why kind of if we work together afterwards, we can, okay, here's what we try, here's what we don't. We're going to keep the team, same starting lineup as the example, for, you know, a couple more games, but we want to see how these two players really work together and do assists, you know, climb or fall, you know, all that sort of thing of getting into the process measures themselves. I wanted to ask you, um, just because I see this a lot in sports teams, um, it seems like at times uh, teams or coaches or whatever, they get to the point where they've, they've evaluated, they've learned, they've tweaked, and it's like they've gotten everything that they could out of something, but the result still isn't there. How do you know how to move away from it and maybe come back to it later? Like, what does that look like in terms of the learning process? Yeah, that's a great question, right? And that's, uh, I think it was Will Rogers, although I'm not sure if it's been attributed appropriately, the, um, you know, kind of comment, uh, you know, when you're, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Um, or I think it was W.C. Fields, you know, that we need to try, try again, uh, but then give up. No use being a damn fool about it. Um, and so, you know, kind of this difficulty, and hey, at, at some point, it, it may not work, right? As, as powerful as it, is, as it is to be determined and work hard and try to learn, um, you know, it may not, it may not be there. Uh, we may need to walk away from it. Um, and I actually think it's, it's similar principles um, as uh, before um, of what we were talking about, of, you know, getting kind of the other knowledgeable people around the table involved um, to really work through, okay, you know, what do we think is truly wrong? Um, you know, what do we need to try to do to fix it? Um, can, and as we start to return to the same, you know, ideas, you know, over and potentially over and maybe over again, right. um, then we get to that moment of, of saying, you know what, like it, it may be time to move on. It may be that this style worked, you know, back to your sports analogy for the team, uh, but they actually need a fundamentally different style. And we see that sometimes, right? There are certain coaches who come in, have a great deal of success, but then it, it kind of wears out. Um, and when they shift to a new team, like they're energized, the team is, it, it's there again, um, but the separation was actually a good idea, and, and we, you know, that is part of the learning process, too, um, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. So another element of learning that you talk about is pairing specialization with variety, and most yep. people, whenever they hear both of those things, they think, how on earth do those two things go together? <laughs> how, do they, how do they work? And so I guess our question is, how do they work? Sure. I mean, often, you know, when I, when I looked at learning kind of early on, I thought it was an either-or proposition, right? You pick something you get really deep in, or you stay broad. Um, and I think what we see is that effective learners tend to take a T-shaped approach, you know, that there's a, you know, one or a small number of things that they truly are world-class experts in, um, but that they have interests that stretch a little bit more broadly. 
And that does kind of a few different things. I mean, the specialization is important um, because as we accumulate experience, we get better. And we need to have some things that, that we are really good at. Uh, but when we do the same things over and over again, there's a risk we get bored. Um, there's even a risk that you know, we start to miss what's going on around us. We kind of put the blinds on and, and we don't see improvement opportunities. Um, you know, I love there's a quote from a French philosopher who says, you know, nothing is more dangerous than an idea when it's the only one you have. Um, and so we kind of start going around with the hammer and everything looks like a nail. And that's where variety comes in, uh, that that breadth uh, can help to engage us, um, can help us see kind of how we might combine things in novel ways. I mean, we know that most innovation comes from bringing together, you know, kind of existing building blocks, but, but combining them in a new way. And so variety helps us um, really through that process. We need this specialization to go with it, though, because we don't want to be kind of a jack-of-all-trades, you know, master of none. Um, you know, and, and so uh, one of the um, – Kind of the guidebooks that helped me with make sense of this. I did some research on it, um, where we saw you know people who had both um, ended up performing better in the long run. Uh, but uh, some of the listeners may have read Valve, the software company, uh, their handbook, their employee handbook came out a few years ago and, and was leaked. And then we spent time with the organization, um, you know, kind of talking to them um, about kind of what they did to uh, to learn. Um, and in the handbook, it highlights kind of this point of hey, look, you know, they're most successful people are, are highly skilled in a broad set of things, but they're world-class experts in a more narrow discipline. Um, and the whole reason is that that expert who's too narrow might have difficulty collaborating if that's all they were. And the generalist who didn't go deep enough in something would kind of stay on the margins and not be able to contribute as an individual. And so um, kind of for learning purposes, we need to recognize it's not specialization or variety, but rather it becomes specialization and variety. How do we maintain that tension, though? Uh, one of the things that Caleb and I talk about a lot, um, just per, just you know, in our interactions with each other, is being being an expert generalist is what we call it. Um, where, <clears throat> how do you maintain that tension? Because there's there's a tension yeah, that's I mean, there. I, yes. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's one. Um, I agree. I struggle with it myself. Uh, quite a bit. I, I think part of it is appreciating that in, in any one moment, I'm not going to have perfect balance. That you know, there may be a stretch of time where I really do need to put my head down and dig in this one area and just kind of everything's going in, in there. But, you know, I can't you know, I can't stay there forever. Now, how long? Well, that's going to depend on where you are, what your career is, um, what's going on right now. Um, but it, it's interesting, as I just look at my own career, I kind of recognize this. Um, there are times I'm head down, very specialized in a particular element. Um, and right now, I happen to be in a little bit more of a broadening phase. Um, and I can kind of feel it internally, even, as I'm reaching out and grabbing entirely new things and trying to kind of pick up some learnings from them, um, somewhat for fun, some that are directly related. Um, and I think that element of time frees us up a little bit. Um, that, you know, uh, many, many of us may be anxious of, oh, do I have the right balance in this right this second? And it's okay not to this second as long as I look over you know, my past month, my past quarter, my past year that I see that balance. So one of the things that I'm curious about, and you 
like one of the things that you talked about was, you know, specialization and variety and how that would kind of be a surprise for most people of how they work together. Was there anything else in your research that while doing it, you thought, man, I'm surprised that, uh, that this helps me learn better. I mean, I, I think one that really jumped out to me was around reflection. Um, that, I mean, back to kind of the me search angle, you know, we started that project because I was skeptical. Um, that I, when I'd been a participant in training programs that had a learning journal, I sort of rolled my eyes and, you know, you can, you can make me sit here with the journal open and moving the pen, but you can't make me actually reflect. Um, and so we worked with a technology services company to do a field experiment. We took a six-week training program that they had um, and did two weeks in the middle. Uh, we randomly assigned folks into a control and a treatment group. The treatment group, at the end of each day for those two weeks, they reflected. They were asked, you know, what are two things you learned today? And they were asked to write about those things. Um, then at the end of that, um, they had to take a test to qualify for the job. They were provisional employees up to that point. The reflection group performed about 25% higher. Their first month on the job, um, their customer service scores were about 10% higher. Uh, we then went and have done a number of lab studies that kind of all show kind of this power of reflection. The neuroscience turns out actually shows that we activate different parts of the brain when we're doing versus when we're thinking. Um, and so kind of it showed to me again just how kind of wrong some number of my instincts are when it comes to learning, uh, um, you know, despite what, what I'm trying to do. Uh, but, you know, it really highlighted that need for taking time for careful reflection, um, that it's a great way to combat the kind of too busy component, um, that by writing, it's a way for us to force some structure on our thoughts, um, that we, we tend to know more than we realize, and writing helps remind us of that. Um, and so that's a component um, that, uh, that I think all of us really could incorporate in our daily lives um, with uh, you know, quite, uh, quite big impact. So I'm really curious, what has led you to want to learn better? Like, and even research this, what's the, like, did something happen to you? Has it just been a desire that you've always had to want to learn better? I think, I mean, so part of it is I certainly appreciate that I enjoy the steep part of learning curves. Um, and that is, you know, uh, something I couldn't articulate, um, you know, 15 years ago is when I left uh, industry to go into academia. Um, and so there, there's kind of an internal joy component to it. Um, there's also, though, just an innate curiosity around it that, um, you know, I, I really didn't understand why these, you know, often individuals, sometimes organizations that I thought had very similar resources performed at such different levels. Um, and once I recognized, hey, it was a story of learning, and I still didn't get it because, I mean, learning's not that hard. We can go find books that tell us, hey, you need to fail, you need to ask questions, you need to reflect. I mean, they're the processes. Why can't, why can't we just do it? Um, and as I kind of looked at myself and said, well, why, why can't you do it then, Brad? Here it is, and yet you're struggling with it. Um, and so that, you know, kind of desire to make sense of it, frankly, for myself and, and hopefully um, in the process of others uh, has been kind of the motivating um, you know, story now for, for a while. So outside of outside of your book, which we're definitely going to encourage people to to check it out, I'm curious. You. you you mentioned um, your those those three things: failure, question asking, and reflection. 
what were, what are some resources or books or other things that people can can check out that maybe you um, that you used as you were kind of putting together your research to help people to be able to do those things better? Uh, great question. I mean, there's I think there are a handful of classics um, that are that are well worth it. Um, the Fifth Discipline um, is uh, absolutely one of uh, the best books uh, that's out there. Uh, and so, you know, Peter Shinge's work um, is uh, is one I return to every so often. Um, for me, uh, discovering the Toyota production system um, was pretty profound. Uh, in that, you know, Toyota was a tiny automaker, uh, you know, and came back after World War II uh, with really no hope of competing with the large uh, producers at the time. Uh, economies of scale was the story. You had to produce, you know, lots and lots of cars, and they just didn't have the volume. And so, a gentleman named Tachi Ono, uh, the father of the Toyota production system. Uh, kind of, you know, started to construct fundamentally a learning model. And so um, kind of through the years, uh, I've read again and again his own work. Um, he has uh, kind of some explanations of what he did. Um, there's a, a book called Machine That Changed the World um, out of MIT's Motor Vehicle Project that I think is, is and that does a really nice job of telling the story. Um, and uh, another kind of Toyota engineer, um, uh, Shingo, uh, has a couple of books on the topic too uh, that that I think summarize it well. And so, you know, folks who are interested in you know kind of how learning plays out in organizations, um, I think would find that interesting if they haven't already read on the topic, uh, because what we've seen was with kind of that Toyota production or lean system is while it started in manufacturing, it's now been deployed in industry after industry after industry, and when done right, it frequently isn't, unfortunately, but when done right, um, it really changes how people learn, um, and so there's some power there. So what would you say, what's something that someone can start doing today to become a better learner? Yeah, I'd go back to that reflection point. I mean, I'd say, you know, hey, at the end of today, um, spend 10 to 15 minutes writing about a couple of things you learned today. Um, you know, and, and both sharing the knowledge with yourself, but also um, kind of where were you struggling? And so if you can create that discipline of just a little bit of reflection, if you can write, that's the best possible thing. Even if you don't have time to write, if you're just, as you're walking, uh, you know, to a subway or a car, or whatever it might be, after you finish the podcast, turn it off, and spend kind of that time um, reflecting, uh, then I think that uh, added to the inevitable action that we all have in our days, people will um, quickly see a, a return to that at that time. So Brad, just as we're wrapping up, we always have a few questions that we love to ask everybody. And the first one is, what's one thing that is helping you either personally or professionally right now? Sure. Um, so right now, um, you know, the, there's an element um, that I found with uh, having written a book on learning and then talking to folks about it uh, has been a somewhat humbling experience. As I'm going through things, there's a lot that, that I know, um, but plenty that I don't. And so I've seen kind of the power of I don't know. Um, and I'd encourage other people to take advantage of that. Uh, that, uh, you know, oftentimes we kind of think as we grow more experienced that we can't, we can't say that, right? That there's kind of a social stigma to 
do it. Um, but being willing to admit, you know, that I don't know um, kind of sets you free not to then say, I don't know and I don't care. You know, often it's, I don't know and I'll find out. Um, I don't know and I want to go explore. Um, but uh, being willing to admit, put yourself out there, um, then lets other people help you. Um, and it also kind of helps you to help yourself. So um, with with this, uh, what if if somebody came to you and said, "Hey, I you know I love learning. I want you to tell me one thing that I need that that I need to learn about." What would that one thing? Yep. Be? Yeah, I mean the uh, I, I think I'd give them some advice that uh, I have a mentor Upton, who passed last year um, gave me that. Uh, you know, I was going to meet with him one day. Um, we had a 30-minute meeting. I probably had 90 minutes of content, but, you know, I know my operations. <laughs> I could solve that problem, right? I just would talk three times as fast. Um, and, you know, we got into the meeting. I was flying through things. I was, you know, 10 minutes in, um, on track, feeling good about myself, and he reached out and put his arm on me, uh, and he looked me in the eye and he said, Brad, don't avoid thinking by being busy. And so, you know, I tell folks who really want to learn, I would give them that same advice. You know, don't avoid thinking by being busy. And so then if we can take that time to pull back just a little bit, um, then we can start to kind of recognize, well, where might we learn? What do we, uh, what do we need to do? That's really powerful. So finally, what are you learning right now? Yeah, so, I mean, a couple of different directions, one more um, kind of useful for my profession and one less so. Um, the moment I'm, I'm picking up French, uh, that, uh, that's kind of something I've wanted to do for a long time. So this summer, uh, decided, you know, now now is the time. I'm, uh, I think, at 61 days straight on my Duolingo uh, of meeting my, uh, my objective. And so uh, uh, continuing to plug away at that one, uh, trying to catch up to my, uh, my middle school son, who uh, puts me to shame on that front. Uh, and then for the kind of more uh, applicable for my job, I'm spending time around machine learning, uh, trying to uh, you know, kind of I, I do a lot of empirical uh, work, uh, but traditionally with things like regression analysis. Uh, but appreciating kind of the data and the volume that's out there now, um, there's a bunch of new techniques and approaches, uh, and so it's kind of fun digging in and, and starting to uh, to learn more on those. Are there any books or podcasts that you're learning specifically about that? About uh, machine on machine learning front. Um, so uh, there's a there's a neat book, Human and Machine, um, that uh, kind of human plus machine that does a good job of telling some of the stories um, that are out there. Um, the textbook that I found to start with there's a data science for business uh, by Provost and Fawcett that I enjoy, uh, and then um, after that it's been kind of using uh, you know web resources. Gotcha. Well, Brad, thank you so much for being on the Learner's Corner today. If people want to continue to learn from you, find your book, Never Stop Learning, where's the best place for them to do that? Absolutely. So I hope they'll pick up a copy of the book uh, as well, uh, following on Twitter at BRSTATS, S-T-A-A-T-S, and check me out online at uh, BradleyStops.com. Great. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. So, Todd, great, great conversation. I love I. This is really geeky. I love learning about how to learn better. Nerd alert. <laughs> I'm really curious. Um, what? Nerd alert. What did you learn? Well, uh, for me, and this is something that you and I talk about a lot, and this is something that we hear everybody talk about right now, but I think it's just true, is 
learning um, learning isn't just about curation of of content. It's it's discipline, and it's having a plan. And when when you put all those things together, um, you get a lot of the stuff I think that Bradley was talking about. And for me, it was just a good reminder of of what it really takes to learn and what it means to be a lifelong learner. Shameless plug of that. Yep, completely agree. And if you enjoyed this episode, the best way to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes is by subscribing to our podcast on whatever podcast player you use. And another reason why you want to subscribe to this podcast, do you know, Todd? Well, I've heard you're going to do something. Another reason why is because we are doing uh, a bonus episode Uh this week. We are talking with Terry Smith. What? We get two in one week? Two. It is, it's an early Christmas present from the Learner's Corner. Can I have a real early Christmas present from you? What's that? I just want Oh, you just Christmas want an present. early Christmas present. I just want an early <laughs> Christmas present from you. I'm just asking. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one. Okay. Uh, but we, we talk... You can't flip me off. That doesn't count. We talk with... I'm not doing that. <laughs> we talk with... Um, Man, we talk with Terry about a new approach to leadership, um, leadership through hospitality. And it's it's just a really fascinating conversation. What's it up? Like, give, give people a tease. With Terry? Yeah. Well, for one, he guy is super, super passionate about, um, about his book and about – but not just about the book and selling books or anything like that um, – He's super passionate about the the concept of being a hospitable leader. Hospitable, Hosp- yeah, hospitable. Yes. Um, well, I was thinking if I was saying the word right, <clears throat> but he's super passionate about it, and and you know he he's a pastor, and so he he's all obviously you know real focused on what it means to to be a hospitable person, and and how to be a good person and how to do all those things, yep. but. But when he took it into leadership, he did some things with it that I wasn't expecting, and and that conversation was was a lot of fun. Also, next week we're talking with a friend of the podcast. Who? Ashley Bohink. What? Yes, we are. We are, and we are talking with her about Generation Z and a lot of other fun stuff. I didn't know too. that. We are. And so, Todd. Make sure you subscribe to the Learner's Corner podcast. And I will do that right and now. you will not miss an episode. Also, leave us a rating and write a review of the podcast as well. And why is it important for people to do that, Todd? Well, because um, iTunes is the largest podcast directory out there. When you give us ratings and reviews, only the five-star ones, please. When you do that, it pushes us up further in the rankings, and it means that other people can hear what we're learning about. There's also another reason why. Oh, there is another reason why. It's a very important reason. Um, You see, Caleb Mason has agreed that um, at the end of our little thing, uh, if if we get 100 reviews and 100 ratings, he will read the reviews— in a voice. Which we're, we're going to read the reviews anyway. If you submit a review, we yes. will read the review. But 
If we hit 100. Caleb will figure out a voice that I will coach him in. And will completely embarrass myself. And so, he will do it. Go for it. Share it with your friends. Have them rate and review it as well. Thank you so much for listening to the Learner's Corner podcast today. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is not Caleb Mason. It's Todd Hicksonball. Keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.